Welcome to the Big 60s Sortout, brought to you by the Big Beatles Sortout. We spent three series sorting the Beatles, and now we're turning our attention to the competition, the context, the bigger picture. Who were they up against? What music influenced them? And will we hear the shockwaves of the Beatles' epic success as we sort all the UK number ones from the 1960s by ranking them for music, lyrics and production? Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the 60s. Welcome to Series 4, Episode 3. I'm Gary Abbott, author, musician and podcaster, and please welcome my popular music history expert brother, Paul Abbott. Hello, everyone. Hello, Paul. Hope everyone's doing well. Yes, we hope you're all well, and we hope you are well, Paul, because as our listeners may or may not know, you've been um, away a little bit. <laughs> away a little been bit? Away that sounds to, like I've been, to I've to been in an asylum or something. <laughs> yeah. No, you went. You've you've had an operation, haven't you, Paul? Yes, just before Christmas, I had a hip replacement revision surgery, um, and people who do know about it were very nice and said nice things about it. But it's been a strange couple of weeks of, as of this recording, of recovery and codeine and all the various things to do with crutches and sitting. So I am sat as comfortably as I can possibly be to do this recording, obeying all the rules of uh, not leaning more than. 90 degrees etc and legs you know all sorts of things okay um, but i'm pleased to report that i'm currently doing okay and i'm not on many tablets and i'm looking forward to getting back into this recording Gr- which is should appear to be an uninterrupted run to our listeners because we're recording these in advance yes yes we had a gap before between this and the last episode with that's uh that's why it matters to us. We should have recorded this while I was in hospital, actually, when I was on the most amount of painkillers. It would have been funny. Didn't know really what was going on. Yeah. It would have been, that could have been a good bonus episode. Mm. But um, but no, we, we quite uh, sensibly have decided to wait till you were compass mentis. And here you are. Well, yeah, at by least our standards. So, so much. Uh, I mean, it is actually, um, um, it is also for us at the time of recording the kind of betwixtmas period so i'm have no idea what day it is or anything i've lost all sense of time and routine so uh, that might not help or it might i have not worn a watch in over two weeks if i see a watch i eat a watch assuming it's some sort of christmas chocolate it's just <laughs> I, it's, I don't know what's going on if i see a watch i eat a watch yeah that's the new catchphrase <laughs> um, that's a t-shirt yeah okay please keep in touch with us on twitter and instagram at big underscore sort or email us at big sort out at gmail.com and please like subscribe and review our little show we had a review recently thank you Didn't whoever we? that was yes oh nice um also, please consider dropping by garyabbott.bandcamp.com and goodgriefliverpool.bandcamp.com to support us in our own musical endeavours, and they're all linked in the episode description. So, here we are, we're on episode three. Um, so, where had we got to? We're still in 1960, aren't we, Paul? We are. We've got a, this episode and the next one, and then that'll round out the year, I think. Good, good. Um, which suggests, if that's correct, that suggests that it's actually quite... Yeah, there must be some long, long-standing weeks of uh, of songs for the final four. But anyway, we've got these. We've got four songs coming up between seventh uh, of July, nineteen sixty, and sort of mid end August, nineteen sixty. That's the period we're in now. Okay, yeah. So only only really a month or so. In, yeah, in these I suppose ones. so. Yeah. In, in in this case, so it must be anyway. that those, those. Do you say there's this one and one more episode for the nineteen sixty? Yeah. Oh, so there must be some yeah to kind of take us through the best part of the last 
quarter Unless of Unless I looked at my notes wrong, which is entirely possible. So, you know, don't take me at my word because no I haven't got them in front of me. Not those, my special spreadsheet. Okay. But I think that might be the case. Anyway, yeah. So, that's it. So, are we doing any... Um, oh, well, of course we are. Of course, at this point, we talk about what the Beatles were up to. Yeah, I mean, remember being, the Beatles. Being the Beatles or, or not being the Beatles quite or on their way to be being the Be Beatles. Well, it is an interesting period, a very, very interesting period for the Beatles. So in this little slice of their career, such as it is, when last we saw them, they'd actually been more like an actual band for the first time, really. Mm. They'd gone off and done this, this tour backing Johnny Gentle in Scotland. And they'd started right. doing that thing where they were demoing songs at home, you know, at McCartney's house. And they've also got Alan Williams from the Jacaranda Club helping them get these bookings. Yeah. I mean, they can't hold on to a drummer for love and the money at the moment. They do get a guy in called Norman Chapman, who's, again, a little bit older than them. But they already sort of knew he wasn't going to be around for long because he was um, he'd deferred his national service already to do an apprenticeship. And it was coming up. He'd finished his apprenticeships, which meant he was going to have to go off and yeah. join the armed forces uh, for a little bit. But yeah, he was a drummer that they... Because they started hanging around in the Jacaranda, which is on Slater Street in Liverpool, mm-hmm. a place that when I started university, I spent ages and ages in it. Um, but opposite that, and still opposite it to this day, is a shop called Jackson's, which is an art supply shop now. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, Norman Chapman used to be an apprentice picture framer oh. at Jackson's operate opposite the Jacaranda. And there was some space above it uh, where he could have a drum kit. And apparently what happens is they hear the sound of drums <laughs> drifting across right. from from over the road while they're in the jacaranda and they're like, can we go and find out who that is? And so Norman Chapman, of which there's not much known, mm. apparently he gave one interview once, um, was the drummer for the Beatles for a little bit in this period, but only a little bit, only a right. few weeks. Okay. Um, but other completely baffling things happening at this time. So there's a beat poet in the UK called Royston Ellis. Right. Who we have mentioned before because he's been the inspiration or linked to the stories behind a couple of songs they've written. Right. That actually are proper Beatles songs along the line. He's quite well known because he's been on TV doing his poetry. He's toured backed by the shadows and things like that, which is weird. So it's like, you know, he's going off doing the beat poetry stuff and the shadows are playing the sort of mean, moody stuff behind him. Right. And he's, he was born in 1941, so technically he's younger than a couple of the Beatles. Uh, older than a couple of the Beatles as well. Mm-hmm. Stop banging but the middle he's got there. A be- yeah, he's got a beard and he's sort of worldly wise and he's sort of openly bisexual. And, right. You know, so he comes up to do a, a thing at Liverpool University and he sort of pops past the jacaranda and he sort of goes, oh, this looks like a cool hip place. And George is there and George is like, oh, hello. And he's like, hello attractive boy in leather um well it's probably not that who knows i mean that's yeah. that's probably reductive but something there's some sort of attraction sort of cool hip yeah, yeah. sexy thing going on um but george takes him back to gambia terrace that famous place where they're all essentially piling in just a bit up the hill mm. and um he ends up crashing there for a while this is the time when he introduces them to the way to get the benzedrine out of a Vicks inhaler. Right. By taking it apart and, you know, eating the benzedrine, which is an amphetamine. Right, okay. You know, so it's like a bit like speed, I, I assume. Yeah. 
Um, so you know, he's really he's he's sort of worldly wise. He's he's arty. He's sexy in, in his own ways. He's, he's he's hung out with famous people, right? And now he's hanging out with the proto Beatles, mm. and obviously John and Stu as art college kids are like, wow, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And apparently they back him while he plays. He, he does some poetry reading in the Jack and stuff like that. And it's nuts. And he's the guy who then he mentions them in the press a couple of times. Right. Okay. You know, he's the guy who sort of says, "Yeah, I, I was hanging out with these guys in Liverpool called the Beatles. I'm thinking of getting them as my backing group." Right. And at some point, apparently, apparently, John and Stu just up sticks and go off down to London, take him up on the offer, or try to take him up on the offer. Right. But uh, they're back within a week, and nobody really knows what quite what happened there. There's no uh. corroborating information on that, but it could have been another point where the the band fractured. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, as, yeah, we don't want them to go off and be a beat poet backing band. I mean, <laughs> I can understand the 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 allure of that kind of cool kind of yeah, yeah. thing, but no, we only want them to be popular musicians. Thank you very much. Indeed, yes. Yeah, but yeah, but it's interesting, you know. It's it's a. a it leads to this sort of mention their names mentioned a couple of times in in wider musical press. Yeah, there's like you know, no information about them. Um, but it's interesting. Yeah, very I, interesting. And yeah, and, and anyone knows that uh, the Royston Ellis link is things like he's the guy who, who introduces John to the person who's the inspiration for Polythene Pam. Right. Okay. And there's a bit of Royston Ellis in the paperback writer sort of right okay. inspiration. Yeah, as it, well. It shows as well. It demonstrates, doesn't it, that it, it, at that point as well, there was obviously something about them that was also yeah. was attractive to other people in the in the industry who were yeah, thinking. Yeah, and the art side of it as much yeah. as the music side, you know. So there's always been a very art. You know, th- these are art college students with with John and Stu. Yeah. You know, and it's it, that influence is there right from the off, and and remains there. They're generating you know. a magnetism, a buzz already. Just with the people they're coming into contact with. So that's, that shows that there's something, there's some people are seeing something, aren't they, at that point? So that's uh, yeah. that's interesting. I'd recommend everyone sort of looks up um, Royston Ellis on YouTube because there's plenty of footage of him being interviewed or performing with the Shadows and stuff like that oh. to what appear to be completely indifferent crowds. <laughs> um, well, that's... But, uh, yeah, more on the Shadows later. Well, I was going to say, well, if only we had had a reason to talk about the Shadows, we'll shall see. So, <laughs> yeah. shall we? Um, shall we... Crack on, then, then we'll see who we do well, see. Well, let me just oh. give you a couple more bits. Go on, Because we've, you know, Ringo, not in the band yet, but yeah. he's in Butlins doing a summer season at Patheli Butlins. Yeah. With Rory Storm, you know, where he's going down a, a, a storm. storm yeah. Because he does his breakout spot. He has, like, star time, where he, he does his singing bits and sort of performs and he's made a feature of him. Oh, cool. You know, he's a proper performer getting paid proper money yeah. to do this stuff. And he's he's having a great time with... The attendant life of a young man hanging around in a holiday camp in summer. Mm. Um, but, but the Beatles themselves are becoming a bit smarter. You know, Paul gets hold of some purple velvet, which he gets his neighbour to make them some jackets. So they've got a sort of uniform that they're wearing. But it's an important time as well because it's the end. We're talking about the end of the, sort of the academic year. Yeah. John fails his exams, funnily enough, right. and gets is that that's art school done for him. Yeah, Stu Stu passes his; he's a year above, and so he has options. Paul just leaves school even before he finds out his exam results. Right, 
Norman Chapman obviously gets called up for his uh, national service, and this ends up with Paul on the drums for a few weeks. Ah, yes. Yeah, I knew there was a Paul on the drums period, but it's it's, it's, yeah. it's just a few weeks here. Yeah, yeah, because essentially what happens is, uh, as, to, as we come to the end of the, the period we're talking about, Alan Williams, Hamburg, that's going to happen. Right. So they need to find a drummer, they need to make arrangements, something new is going to happen in the Beatles' career, and that's where we'll leave it this time. Tune in next week, folks. Yeah, okay. for the story you've never heard before. <laughs> well, that's where we're at then. And what was what was drifting out of the radios in the um, in the jacaranda when there wasn't bands playing? What what were they catching us? Off the jukebox. Off of the, yeah. off of the jukeboxes. Um, so um, let's, let's find out by going through them. And first up this week, we have Jimmy Jones with Good Timing. If little, little David had to grab that stone Lying there on the ground Big gold lion might have stomped on him Instead of the other way around But he had timing paul well, it was good timing for jimmy jones because when this comes out his record before it which is called handyman is still in the charts at number three. Oh right. so it, it's a it overlaps That's the release overlaps and uh, although that handyman doesn't get to the top of the charts it gets pretty close and this one does get to the top of the charts for three weeks yes it comes in on the uh, 7th of july 1960 written by fred tobias and clint ballard jr Produced by Otis Blackwell. The B-side in the UK is a song called Too Long Will Be Too Late, which is a kind of sort of Sam Cooke-style, sort of slightly Caribbean-tinged uh, song. Pretty good. Cool. It's on MGM in the uh, in the UK. And, uh, yeah, this, funnily enough, Good Timing wasn't a number one in America. It only got to number three. Okay. But, it's yeah, this is, a, this is an American import of what I consider to be one of the best songs that we've we're going to talk about and certainly my favorite so far ah interesting so i i didn't think that i'd ever heard this one before until i when i went to um look it up on youtube i I realized it was attached to the american graffiti soundtrack which was a really formative album for me growing up and i because we had it didn't we on vinyl yeah, yeah, mum and dad had it, yeah. so we would listen to that. I don't know if there was a side or or a disc that I listened to more than another. If it was a, if it was a two disc thing, and this wasn't on the side, maybe I, I think I did favour one of the sides more than another. But um, I, I I don't know how this would have escaped me because I you know it's it's right up my street. Um, and you would have thought you'd have heard it on I don't know a, a, an advert for a watch maybe, or I eat watches. Yeah, see, I see <laughs> oh, it, a watch. I eat a watch. It's all linked. But um, but because we're in classic late fifties rock and roll territory, aren't we? US kind yeah, of yeah. rock and roll, and that kind of that classic chord progression, and um, is it twelve eight feel kind of thing that you get with these? Oh, uh, it's not on this one particularly, but I know you're thinking sort of the doo wop yeah. feel, yeah, thing, and this does have a sort of um, that major to minor thing. It's in that, that mode, isn't it? That 
that works. Yeah. Although it's got some really, really interesting chords in this. What this is not one where you can just do it on a, a round and about four chord pattern. It's actually got some really interesting passing chords in it, which makes it a really, really appealing sound. Yes, yeah, and the singing is, is brilliant. I mean, the uh, there is one notable difference to things. Well, it's not really notable difference, but this has an extreme novelty hook. I think I think this really flirts on the edge of novelty, which we'll talk about more in the lyrics. But it obviously is much a huge part of the music as well, because the whole song really hangs around the ticker ticker ticker, tocker 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 falsetto falsetto yeah. vocal. Yeah, which is a lot of fun. It's very memorable. It's catchy, but it's very novelty. You know, having a it is uh, in 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 an, in the good sense of novelty. Yeah, yeah. You know, it can be applied in lots of different ways, but. As we oft, as I think about every time we look look at one of these songs, I think, what is it that makes this a hit? Yeah. And what clearly makes this a hit? I mean, there's lots of elements I think that, that mean this is a hit, but one of the real standout one is, oh, it's the one with the high singing in it. Yeah, which is what people think about Del Shannon exactly. later on. What I was going to say, and this is a big influence on Del Shannon. I was going to say, which one? Which one comes first? Have we have we yeah, missed this. Del Shannon, or yeah. is he to come? He's to come. So and yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, this is like coming off the back of doo-wop, but it's a solo singer rather than just being the high voice in a doo-wop yes. quartet or whatever. And it, and it, it sings it really well. And, it's, the, and yeah. it's such a strange vocal thing to to do. It, it, it's really fun, actually, to sing along with this. <laughs> I genuinely, and I, I, I was listening to this the other day, just getting back into getting ready to sort my notes out for this stuff. Mm. And... It, this song made me cry. Oh, do you know why? And it does. I listen to this. It's such a silly thing to make me cry because it's just—it's almost exactly what I want out of music. Yeah. In in such a way, for someone who's obsessed with the Beatles, who don't sound like this at all, no. <laughs> it's it's there's a there's a few little sort of fifth late fifties early sixties things that I just think they got it right. Yeah. Like yeah. that's about as good as it can be. That's, and this is one of those songs where it's just like a little bit inside of me goes like, oh yeah, that that's it. I'm going again now thinking yeah. about it. Um, that's why I, I, just, I loved the American Graffiti soundtrack because it, yeah, it's all of this vein. Like Since I Don't Have You and stuff like that. And yeah. yeah, it's, but this is, this is amazing. So Jimmy Jones, it was born in 1930, mm. um, died in 2012. So he's from Birmingham, Alabama, but he goes to New York and becomes part of the entertainment industry there, starts out as a dancer, joins a doo-wop group, mm-hmm. um, who record a song that he wrote called Handyman, as I mentioned, that this group Sparks of Rhythm. Um, and they don't get a hit with it, but he then himself records it in 19... re-records it, reworks it, mm. with this producer, Otis Blackwell, and has this sort of international smash hit called Handyman. Right, yeah. And like I say, it was still at number three in the UK charts when this song comes out. So he's he's having his purple patch at the time. You know, there's not much more in terms of hits for him after this. Yeah. Um, the B-side in America was a song called My Precious Angel, which is a shame it wasn't the B-side here, but that's a song that's almost as good as this. It's a ballad, but it's like, that could have been a hit as well. He was really... The point is, he was amazing. Mm. His, his voice is great. His, his voice style is, is great. Yeah. Um, I can't find a direct link between him and the Beatles, though. Okay. There Which is frustrating. Always, can't always be one. Although, he, he, there is a there seems to be a CD out there called Influences on the Beatles, and this track is on there, and it's like, well, I can't find any reason why. Yeah. Um, I mean, they'll obviously have known it. 
Just by uh, being yeah. before them, I imagine, and popular. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if you want to do a really sort of uh, uh, tricksy way of linking them, obviously he was successful with two singles on The Bounce, so he comes over to the UK to tour. That tour is promoted by Arthur Howes, and Arthur Howes is the guy who promotes all these big package tours around the UK with loads of bands, right. of which later on is the sort of thing the Beatles do, and Arthur Howes promotes them. Okay either as part of package tours or as headliners of package tours themselves. But I don't think there's any overlap with with Jimmy Jones. And, and certainly when he was touring in the UK, it was a period where the Beatles first went to Hamburg, so they weren't in the UK. So I don't think they would have ever seen him. Right. Oh, well. It's a, it's enough for me. Yeah, it'll do. Um, yeah, so I was just saying, with, uh, with the music, he, he, like you said, he sings really, really well. Um I think um, the verses are a vehicle to the choruses, really. For me, mm-hmm. they, they they don't they don't bring a huge. They do lyrically, but you don't. I don't. It's hard to, only when you sit and read the words rather than listen to them. But um, I think they're just to get to that chorus. I like the links between the the two. The didn't 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 kind of like the hits, you know. And I like the little staccato muted guitar chords. Is it guitar? There's something very staccato muted a muted string sound in there. There's all sorts like, going on in there. You know. Yeah, it's like arpeggiated guitar, but like palm muted. Palm muted, yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a lovely lineup of of instrumentation. It's so you've got uh, you've obviously got someone playing bass, probably stand up bass. Yeah. You've got a drum kit. You've got this guitar doing arpeggios, like you've just mentioned. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. You've got an acoustic guitar. You've got the backing vocal group. You've got a piano playing stuff, but mainly doubling the bass part, so that gives it a really cool bass sound. Oh yeah. And then this lovely string sound, mm. just beautiful uh, yeah, that, yeah, high yeah. strings, yeah. just, and then a voice that just fits right on top of that perfectly. Yeah, it, um, it does. It does go. Over. Yeah. So the orchestration is listed as being under the direction of Bob Mersey. So you could claim that as a, <laughs> <laughs> a link to the Beatles. Bob Mersey is what happens if you fall in the river. Yeah. Um, I don't say that. Uh, yeah, but it's written by. Um, two quite successful songwriters, Fred Tobias and Clint Ballard Jr. I mean, Clint Ballard Jr.'s name will pop up again. It's great having the, the uh, name Ballard in your name. Is that his real ba- name? Ba- Ballard. Oh, Ballard. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, his his name will pop up again in, in the future uh, of this project, uh, as so many of these people do. Mm. And I just it's just such a lovely... It is. ...arrangement. It's very good. I do think... Outside of the choruses, it's a, it's you know, um, a bit of a one-trick pony from the chorus. But I like that trick. It's a good trick, and I, it's I, a very good trick. I love all the fifty-sounding stuff, even if they are similar chords throughout them, because it's kind of it's kind of a, a a little genre pocket of its own. Um, I'm giving it forty-four for music, which you have to remember in the scheme of things is probably one of the best so far, because um, my scale is my. My Beatles scale. <laughs> I don't want to disappoint you after you've just whacked lyrical. <sighs> but anyway, let's go on to production. Yeah. 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 Um, it's... Otis, Otis Blackwell, as I mentioned, yeah. uh, is the producer of this. So Otis Blackwell himself was a very, very important songwriter. Yeah. Um, you may have heard of a little song called Great Balls of Fire. I haven't heard You may of... have heard of a little song called Don't Be Cruel, I, I... All Shook Up, yes. Fever. What? Yes. You know... These are all some of the songs that Otis Blackwell wrote, but he's also obviously a brilliant producer here as well, working with Jimmy Jones. Yeah. Very, very important figure in in sort of 
you know the back room of of american rock and roll and r&b right so he's a yeah, mover and, and a shaker yeah and whatever he's doing with with his engineers here to get this recorded is is right yeah correct i think it's got a lovely overall sound to it I, the only thing i found the backing vocals just a little on the washy and echoey sound but the main vocal isn't lost in it which is great and the strings are very nice and as i said that little muted string guitar sound is, is really kind of popping through and given the vocal dynamic range that's managed very well if you think about people's placement to the microphone when they've got to open up into that ticker 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 tocka 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 when he really opens up when he does that doesn't it yeah and it comes across brilliantly. really get that cool to- tone to his voice and we get and this is an interesting one or maybe not <laughs> i might be overplaying it we get a fade out which i'm not sure we've heard we've not heard much of so far and i wonder how how common fade outs are already by this point or not but yeah we get a fade yeah. out Mm-hmm. I don't know. It is interesting. It's like the the song sort of yeah. He runs out of verses very quickly. Yeah, there, it's, it's, it's not a long it's song. Only two minutes, isn't it? Two minutes ten or something. Yeah, yeah. but I I think it's a solid fifty for production for me for this one. Right. Um. All very good. So then we get it. we get onto lyrics, and here we have the very interesting lyrics, which is where, I mean, the word novelty, you know, strip it down a little bit. Novel, as in. You know, there's not many other songs with tick, tick and tock, tock in it, apart from Hickory Dickory Dock, I suppose. <laughs> but um, but then how do they play that? You know, the idea is we have a song that's, that ends up having, well, the verses cover David and Goliath, yeah, Columbus, and then yeah. a verse about just, a, you know, the narrator, whoever's singing the song and, and his his love situation. Not that the other ones are love situations. I mean, it just has scope. I mean, I, the logic doesn't follow through, but I do like the lyrics. <laughs> there isn't really anything about timing. It says it, it says if little David hadn't grabbed that stone lying there on the ground, Big Goliath might have stomped on him instead of the other way around. But it's not so much timing as just something that happened, isn't it? Yeah, that's not like... Um, and then with the... Um, what? Who in the world would have ever known what Columbus could do if Queen Isabella hadn't hocked her jewels in 1492? Again, it's not—it's not timing. It's just something that's happened in time, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe. I guess you can, but I don't mind that because it's. A, I mean, how many songs have a verse about David Goliath and Columbus in them? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just—it's just the the. Uh, I think the the internal logic of the song. Could, those verses could have been anything, couldn't they? Yeah, I think if they'd have had another verse, they would have had to think of another strange thing to add in there, and it wouldn't have made, you know, it, it would have ended up being something about Alexander Graham Bell making a telephone call or something like that. Yeah. It, you know, it, it would have been, yeah. What they needed was the person who invented a clock, <laughs> maybe a yeah. watch, if they wanted to go a bit literal with it. But yeah, those are just things. They're just things. You could go on forever. You could just say anything that happened because it happened in some kind of time. But I do like the ticker 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 and the tocker tocker tocker, and I think that's that's fun. So I've given it forty three for lyrics, which gives it an overall of forty six. Well, it should be twice that. <laughs> well, if it was twice that, Paul, it, 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 harking back to my uh, my uh, scores for the Beatles, it'd be up there with um, with things like Hey Jude. <laughs> so I don't yep, I don't know fine. that it's there really, which is why you've got to remember the scale, Paul. Remember uh. the scale is from good to really good. Yeah. Not from mm. bad to good, I think. Anyway, apart from the bad ones where they're right down the bottom. <laughs> but I, yeah, I do really like it, and um, and I, I think it's um, 
it's it's going to stick with me and I've been singing this one and playing it for people. So that's got something, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been saying, listen to this one. Have you heard this? But it's funny, it doesn't seem to have a legacy. I, I'm surprised I, I don't oh, no, know it's it. sad, really. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we move on to the next one and see what we th- I think of that. Yes. Okay, well, next we have Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Please don't tease. <laughs> Tell me that you love me, baby, then you say you don't. You tell me that you come on over, then you say you won't. You love me like a hurricane, then you start to freeze. I'll give it to you straight right now. Please don't tease. Please don't tease, Paul. Okay, I won't. This is rubbish. <laughs> okay, you're going to tease Cliff. Um, well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Yeah, not teasing not him. You're making, just telling him. Not it's teasing straight. anyone about my feelings about this <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah. Um, no, it's not rubbish. That's not. That's not really fair. But it's not great. Yeah. Um, this is our first appearance of Cliff and the Shadows. Um, we'll. I'm not going to go massively into detail because we're going to have lots of opportunity to talk about Cliff and the Shadows over the coming yeah. episodes. But yeah, Please Don't Tease uh, becomes number one on the 28th of July, 1960. It spends three weeks at number one, although it does dip and re-enter. So the song after this has a week at number one. and it, So we have a couple of those occasions okay. where the songs go back up to number one, having dropped down. Um, it's out on Columbia, which is obviously part of EMI, produced by Norrie Paramore, which is a name we've heard already with Michael Holiday. Yeah. The B-side is a song called Where Is My Heart and it's written by Bruce Welch and Pete Chester. And yeah, this is, like I say, this is Cliff's first appearance in our 1960s chart. Mm. Cliff Richard, who is still around now and is still making headlines by saying things like he refused to have his photo taken with Elvis during Elvis's so-called fat period right. because he didn't want to be seen with someone who was fat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that went down well. Well done, Cliff. You'd have thought before opening your mouth. Um, what a horrible thing to say. That is him. Yeah, I didn't know that. He didn't want yeah, to... Yeah, that was only a couple of weeks ago that happened. That, that people found that out. That he said, yeah. yeah. Hmm. But it's a strange stance to take on things, isn't it? Um, yes, but our first bit of Cliff and the Shadows doesn't exactly come screaming into the, uh, the chart, does it? It more kind of comes kind of like, hello, I'm Cliff. I'm going to yeah. sing a song now. But the opening riff is promising. And this is probably going to be the reverse of the other song in that it's hard when you, to listen to the music, to not say it's not it's not a musically accomplished song. So the shadows are doing their job. They're just doing well, it. Behi- they are to an extent. Yeah, I have a, behi- a feeling about this. They're doing it very gently behind Cliff, though. I think this is very much Cliff Richard. Well, well Cliff Richard and the shadows kind of thing. You know, yeah. they're like, we're just going to be, be back here just playing for Cliff and Cliff will do his thing. And someone's gone, is that, are you sounding, are you sounding slightly exciting? Turn that down. You know, everything's yeah. a bit like, okay, keep it all down. Because it's, it's Cliff, it's all got to be gentle. And well, this is it. I smooth. mean, what we, should, what we should mention is that Cliff Richard is a huge, huge star. Yeah. He's like the third best-selling artist in the UK behind the Beatles and Elvis. And the weird thing is, though, 
he's not in America right. at all, ever. No, they've just not, and not broken it. So our, our listeners overseas might not know Cliff Richard the way we know, and they certainly won't have grown up with him in, in the popular culture yeah. as we have, you know, as the guy who is, uh, you know, turns up at Wimbledon, the guy who does the Christmas and New Year songs yeah. and all those sorts of things and the calendars and all that, that stuff. So, I mean, just to... He's been a ubiquitous figure since the 1950s, and he's never gone away. No. Um, he, he was born Harry Webb in 1940, so he's essentially the same age as John Lennon. He's now Sir Cliff Richard, OBE. And he starts out in, in quite sort of raw Elvis style, you know. Right. He's sort of marketed like that as quite hard rock and roller. And if you listen to, like, Move It, one of his earliest hits... That's a real rocker. You know, it's great movie. It. It's a great song. Right. But he becomes very quickly sort of repackaged or sort of has the edges softened and becomes very family friendly, really. Yeah. So although he's sort of representative of youth and, and rock and roll, it's sort of in a, well, go and see him in the cinema. Yeah. With this colourful film. And it's, by the time we get to Please Don't Tease, it's, it, that's, that's that sort that. of cliff. But is that is that because it's echoing, and I don't know what the timelines are like at this point, is that echoing the Elvis move into cinema and the Elvis move into kind of... Because he got... He, bit, he got... Yeah. He got um, what's the word? Sanitised almost from being too raunchy and kind of youth culture-y and, and ended up being in f- musical films, didn't he? You know, and... Yeah, I, I think it's it's less marked with Elvis until he comes back from the having been in the army. Right. Um, whereas with Cliff, it's it sort of happens very quickly. They sort of he follows the sort of the light entertainment sneaks up on him very quickly, which is but that and, is where and, he lives. Envelops him. Yeah, it's not like I mean, as you say, for our UK listeners and anyone who is aware of Cliff, like that is where he lives, isn't he? He is. He is. Oh, totally, he is, yeah. He's soft and kind of a like. Most senses of the word, he's a very gentle being, isn't he? I think you get the feeling. I think that's apart from that's not, not liking to be seen with, with fat people. He's he come his persona is comes across as very much kind of nicey nicey. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, if a bit weirdly creepy because of it in, to some people, perhaps. Yeah, like I could say it's the uh, it's that ubiquity and and sort of the the Mickey taking we've lived of. Yeah, yeah. You know, years and years and years of people taking the Mickey out of him for. Yeah, for being well, the, longevity as much as anything, really. Yeah, and and that thing that it's hard to imagine that he was anyone's, or most. He's obviously so famous, but you're like, well, who is it who's buying all of his stuff? Then who's really the big? Well, there always and there always is someone. It must it's, be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like the, I mean, uh, and of course, there's a lot of talk about how he's often been used as a sort of example of him and the shadows, of like being like anathema to the Beatles, like the opposite. Yeah. Of like they were deliberately trying not to be. Cliff and the Shadows, but actually, the point with Cliff and the Shadows in those early days is they were homegrown British rock and rollers. Yeah, and at least a couple of those early hits, like uh, Move It and Through to Sort of Living Doll type of stuff, were everyone loved them. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, Cliff I, was big. I can understand that Living Doll, um, but this one I, I've never heard it, or if I have, it's just been instantly yeah. Forgotten. By this point, I think that's. Um... But it got to number one because he obviously had a big following. And the thing is, I say when you and I examine the playing, 
despite its gentleness, I quite like the bass and, uh, the, and the drums. They're really marking out little rhythmic passages and changes to push it along. Yeah, they're tight. And we get a guitar solo that adds some interest kind of two-thirds of the way through with a nice wobble and an interesting timing. Cliff is singing nicely. It's just a bit soft and damp, despite the drums and bass. The guitar's mostly just kind of jangling along, apart from when the solo is there. It's just kind of playing a stricter rhythm as you as you can imagine with as little kind of um processing on the sound as it could, you can imagine it's it, it it but the the intro riff and the outro riff hark at better things it's very safe and i can't say that musically it's bad it's not my bag it's not something i would listen to on purpose but um it's now giving it 41 for music because i don't i don't think you can it's just not necessarily what i would want to hear but i can't say it's bad, well. bad as such so it's written by Bruce Welch, who plays guitar in The Shadows, oh, right. um, the rhythm guitar, and Pete Chester, who had been in um, the band that became The Drifters. So originally it was um, Cliff Richard as part of a band called The Drifters, right? but they tried to release a record with Cliff and The Drifters written on it in America, and then the actual Drifters in America said, don't do that. So they changed the name. Mm. Uh, that band eventually becomes the shadows. You know, people leave and they find other people. Yeah. More, more on that later. Um, but um, my problem with the music is right. The key line is the title. Please don't tease. Yeah. And on the word please, the bass plays the wrong note, or the guitar plays the wrong chord. So that's really weird. So it's silly. Like that. What's happening is you get a E. A note of E underneath a chord of a D, right? Which is and it's like yeah. well, that's not right, hmm. and it loses focus on the key word of the key line. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, Maybe I need to listen to it more to dislike it as much. <laughs> yeah, but there's also a weird note in the um, solo too, as well, where it's like, well, do that again. I mean, have another take, please. Ah, well, yeah, it, but you know, I would recommend everyone listen to it very critically on for that sort of like, why is the bass doing that? Okay. It's I think it's strangely untidy for the shadows, where it's it, otherwise it's they're usually very neat. Mm. But um, well, yeah. let's move on to production then. Uh, I mean, the production you would expect is quite a reason between behind why it feels so gentle and a bit timid because you, they've obviously gone for very clean. I know the the the, the shadows do, but they, it's very clean. It's so clean, it's so squeaky clean. This guitar sound that you're like. What's the point of plugging it in? I can hear the drums nicely though, and they and uh, there's just some lovely. Um, it doesn't punch the, the the drums and the bass lock nicely, but they don't punch at all because someone's decided not to. It seems to me like a a very specific choice to say no, no, no. Let's just underplay it a bit. Under you know, keep it soft, keep it Cliff. Um, yeah. Cliff's voice is captured really well, but there's no dynamic range to it because there's no dynamic range to the song. So it sounds like him with a band literally behind him, if you know what I mean. Like, there is Cliff and there is a band playing. Rather than, you know, he doesn't feel integrated into the sound of the band. No, no. I mean, this is Norrie Paramore who, let's be honest, is making a lot of money off being able to make these sorts of records. You know, he's he hits a formula with Cliff and the Shadows particularly. He does it with lots of other people as well. Mm. Um, He's a huge cog in the sort of British music production scene so he's he's an A&R man he's the you know George Martin's equivalent across you know on Columbia as opposed to Parlophone he's having the success he knows what he's doing and it works so while we can sit here and say 
I don't like it. It's silly. It doesn't sound cool. Mm. Um, <laughs> people were buying it, and they were buying a lot of it. So he was doing something right. I mean, it's 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 obviously a, you know an established sound, and I scored it forty seven for production, which seems high now. I feel like Cliff's sneaking in past my. <laughs> I think Careful. I think he's um he's just kind of like he's bored me into kind of giving him higher scores. But I think the lyrics <laughs> that's, that's his secret. The lyrics might drag him back down again. So let's move on to the lyrics. I mean. It, I mean, it, there's nothing to it. Is nothing there? To, it's a good old, in, in the sense of, it's one of those "Why are you teasing me?" songs, which seem to be so all the rage in the early '60s, don't they? Songs about you know, you told me that you love me, but then you're with some other bloke. It's one of those again, which I mean, these rock and roll singers need to find some more straightforward kind of love interest in their lives. They always seem to be uh, ending up with ladies who are dating two or three men at the same time. Or say one thing yeah. and do another and, and whatever. It's just hard when you hear Cliff's talking about it because it sounds so ingenuous. Um, yeah. Oh, yes, because he's famously I, never really got married or anything, has he, Cliff? That's been one of his oh, things. Oh, yes, his celibacy is one of the yeah. things that's been referred to repeatedly over the years. Um, yeah, it's, I'm not much for these words. They're not. They're the same old but not done any differently and they don't really sound right come out of Cliff, Cliff's mouth. Yeah, it's a sort of... It's built on a sort of chorus that is a verse... Yeah. The same tune is used for two bits and then it's repeated a couple of times with a little middle eight section, a B section rather. Um, squeeze me, I need your tender touch. It's There's nothing much going on. It's, um, I, I don't like, oh, you play it oh so doggone cool. Oh, doggone cool. Yeah. Yeah, but don't forget, he's not the only person who's used doggone for. Who, who yeah. else famously used the word doggone who, who we, we like to talk about? I can't remember now. It's Paul McCartney, you know, and the girl is mine. Oh, yeah. The dark well, gone girl is mine. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've given it uh, 29 for lyrics to drag Cliff back down the cliff, yeah. <laughs> which gives it 39 overall. I'm kind of half wondering why I gave it so much for production and stuff now. But anyway, I did, uh, and it doesn't matter because it's all for fun. So 39 overall that got. So let's go on to something else. Next we have Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over. When you move in right up close to me That's when I get the shakes all over me Quivers down the backbone I got the shakes down the knee bone Shaking all over, Paul. No, sitting quite still. Yes. In order that I don't do myself a mischief. It's very sensible. Yes. But, I mean, we've got quite a, a lineup of songs this week. Yeah. And several of them, I mean, well, half of which are really, really important guitar songs, this being the first of them. Mm. Um, but all of them being quite interesting. Shaking all over, it gets to number one on the 4th of August, 1960. So this only spends one week at, at number one. This is the thing that interrupts. Cliff, and then Cliff comes back up. Produced by uh, Walter Ridley, in name. I'll talk more about that when we get to production. Composed by Johnny Kidd, Guy Robinson. The B-side is Yes Sir, That's My Baby, the old song. Oh, yeah. Uh, com comes out on HMV. 
And yeah, this is Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Johnny Kidd, sort of noticeable for playing up the image. Once they gave him the name Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, they go full tilt into eye patch wearing and Excellent. outfits and all, all sorts of stuff. I did notice that, and I was wondering, did he have an eye patch and therefore they called his band the Pirates, or did they have a band they called the Pirates and therefore he wore an eye patch? The latter, <laughs> yeah. So his his birth name is um, Freddie Heath. Um, yeah, and uh, that's much better. But Johnny Johnny Kid is better than Freddie Heath. Yeah, well, given that his group was so, he has a skiffle and rockabilly group, and it ends up being called Freddie Heath and the Nutters. <laughs> which <laughs> sort of, I think, is amazing. Seventies, isn't it? More more punk. Sorry, late seventies. But it's, it sounds like the sort of thing someone would have written in nineteen eighties when they were trying to do a, a sketch parody yeah. of a punk band. Yeah, yeah. And they don't really know what to say, so that's like, yeah. Um, but yeah, funnily enough, the record company were like, "Okay, we're signing you, but um, yeah. you're going to be called Johnny Kid and the Pirates." And they're like, "Fine, get us some stripy tops and eye patches." <laughs> but you know, that's a really important thing because it sort of sets this a particular yeah. sort of idea in motion of of that, that over the top dressing, that sort of, which I suppose finds its sort of peak in people like Alice Cooper, yeah, and people. Kiss and people, yeah, stuff like that. So it's a it's you know part of the way towards that i mean johnny kid didn't get to really see that happening because sadly he dies in a car crash oh. in 1966 well, that's a shame um yeah uh, so that's that's sad but yeah johnny kid and the pirates they have you know a few sort of discs and this is the real one that that makes a difference i think this is the mm. one that's got the legacy beyond its sales figures in terms of, you like guitars? Listen to this. Yeah, it's um, it's great, absolutely great song, and um, they didn't think much of it. Who didn't? Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. <laughs> yeah, blimey, because uh, that's uh, so. Or is that a cool thing to say about your best hit, or is it like they just really didn't? Maybe, maybe it's, they got tired of playing it. If it was the the big one for them, who knows? But I, this is more like it, isn't it? This, I mean, this is this is um from the opening riff. We kind of get some really sultry guitar playing, and a classic groove bass, and all of a sudden the world's exploding a bit with this one for me. From so far, it's like, okay, this is different. We've just had Cliff, so the 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 contrast is stark, isn't it? <laughs> when you yeah, when you get totally this, it's that's a really interesting thing to have Cliff on one hand and then and then this, this and the vocalist. You know, Johnny Kidd himself comes in after those guitar, guitar and bass starts the groove going, and Propus gives it some sleaze on the vocals, doesn't he? After again, after Cliff squeaky clean, you've got someone here who's throat cracking, screaming, quivers down the backbone. You know, he's letting his voice go. It's it, it's un it's unrestrained. It's got attitude. This song and and then it, a mad drum break cracks through halfway through to give us into a, an amazing rock solo he's like where's this song come from in 1960 so far yeah, anyway yeah. Th- it's just got so much bite compared to what the shadows and cliff were doing in the last song the sound of it all because i was half listening to the shadows going well is it because they haven't really got heavier rock yet to really know how to sound heavier then you listen to this and go no presuming this wasn't the first one to sound like this there obviously was that rawness was out there wasn't it um, or, yeah. Or, but these guys must have been 
but it rarely came through a, in to the number studio. One. Yeah. You know, like th- through a proper big studio anyway. Yeah. I mean, you find a bit more of it in those sort of independent producers. Uh, but yeah, there's little that comes out of somewhere like HMV that sounds like this. Yeah. And, and, and we, get, we get growling guitars. We also get the little muted string sounds that we got in from the first song as well. So that's. Yeah, the guitar arpeggio. That, that's still in there. So we're getting a, we're getting a bit. This has it all. And you know, I yeah. I know the riff, you know, the, the opening riff, and this song in I, I must do, or there's things that sound like it somewhere, but I've never sat and listened to this really. And it's 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 a great song, it's really yeah. full of vim and vigor, Paul. Oh yes, and mean, I, moody, and magnificent. I can't imagine that this was not something that made the likes of Mr. Lennon and McCartney, you know, their ears prick up and go, ooh. What's this then? Yeah, it's a weird one. Again, I couldn't find any really good anecdotal evidence about uh, linking the Beatles and all them talking about this or mentioning it. Mm. There's a photo out there of Paul McCartney uh, with Johnny Kidd, who's just wearing a suit at this point, although he's got his eye patch on. Uh, And I think they possibly played the same bill in the cavern in 1962. Right. October 1962. But I can't find anything more really about them or about the impact of this song on them or whether it, whether they noticed it or, or knew it at all. Um, you just would have thought it would be in their set. You'd have thought this would be one that they'd slot right in there, kind of. I'm sure it must have been in lots of band sets, yeah. but uh, no, not as far as uh, as I know anyway. If anyone knows any different, please do let us know. But uh, it's, it, it got me going, Paul. I'm shaking all over. I'm giving Ooh. it 75 for music because... Yeah, I mean, yeah. sorry, Gary. It's worth mentioning because we're obviously talking about uh, Johnny Kidd, but the band is Alan Caddy on rhythm guitar, Clem Catini on drums, Brian Gregg on bass, and Joe Moretti on lead guitar. And it's supposedly a one take wonder. Really? Like, yeah. One take to record the band, and then another take to do the overdubbed bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where they have the cat up to the microphone. (laughs) Is that how they do it? Well, you can tell me about that in production. Um, yeah. yeah, so 75 for music and on to production. I mean, it has such a great band sound, which makes sense now you've just told me that, um, with the guitars right up front and competing with the vocal in a good way, you know, showing them both off. That's the difference. This is what I'm saying. Cliff was standing in front of his band kind of sonically and literally. This is a band that consists of a vocal as well. You know, they're all in there. And the echo and the voice works really well with his growl and his kind of throat squeaks that he's letting happen because he's not trying to be perfect. The imperfections, the distinctive and soulful performance is captured in, in that and, and, and enhanced by it. The bass is full and round and the wobble on the guitar to mark the breaks, which is that cat you just mentioned, is yeah. lovely, you know. Uh, just They're just great. I think this is a real rocker, this one. And then that yeah. drum solo and, and the fact that the bass drum and snare are in there, they're really kind of like pushed in this so you're really hearing that i mean if if cliff's song was clean this is like a reaction to it and and but then again another song with the fade out which also makes sense given what you've said about a one take wonder because it sounds like they just keep on playing and someone goes yeah. now it can't go on longer than this you, you haven't got any more verses just start fading after after the second chorus or whatever it is or the third chorus yeah. um yeah and it seems like it was in full swing i'd love to hear how it the session ended you know what i mean yeah yeah Right. Well, well, I think the thing to keep in mind is like they were basically told, right, you've got to you go in to the studio tomorrow. You're going to record your next single, which is going to be "Yes, Sir, That's My Baby." <laughs> yeah, it's um, different, isn't it? And that ver- their version of that has to be heard to be believed. 
I don't think it would have been a hit. It does sound like a mad drunk just doing it in the corner of a pub. Um, but while they're in there, they're sort of, they're, well, they're told, if you write a song, you can record that. That'll be the B-side. And obviously, it's, it's appealing to write a song because that means publishing. It means more yeah, money. Yeah. So they they write the song on like the 12th of May, apparently. And then they take it into the studio on the 13th, Friday the 13th, appropriate for this sort of spooky-sounding song. Um, record it in one take, and they sort of go, oh, no, that's clearly the A-side. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's mad. And in for um, Clem Catini and Brian Gregg on, on drums and bass, that was their first session as as members of the Pirates. Wow. It's like, oh, you've done all right there. Yeah, that's great. I and mean, that sounds like they've kind of accidentally captured something ahead of its time by its sheer kind of unlikeliness, really, you know, yeah, new members. The, the okay, is it's, it's it's a B side. Oh, you, well, we've only just written it. Let's get it down. And something has combined there in all of those. Yeah, lightning in a bottle. Type yeah, thing. Um, yeah. It's listed as being produced by Walter Ridley, and on paper it is. But actually, Wally Ridley, as he's better known, is a guy who produces people like Al McCogan and Max Bygraves and like Benny Hill and comedy <laughs> records. Later, on. this is he's not a rock and roll producer. This is he's born in 1913. He has no interest in, in rock and roll. This is a guy who worked with Vera Lynn during the war. Blimey, and he came out with this. That's far but as his he, production. He saw the potential in the rock and roll craze, yeah. so he sort of was all right signing people and saying that could be a hit, but actually the record would have been produced by Peter Sullivan, who was his assistant. Right. Uh, with an engineer called Malcolm Addy. And uh, Peter Sullivan, his name will crop up again in future episodes. Um, so, yeah, it's not Walter Ridd. It's not Wally Ridley doing it because it, no. he was not that sort of guy. But it means that perhaps because it's Peter Sullivan, it's like... I have a feeling they've driven the base more than they should have done. I have a suspicion yeah. that they would have been... Overgoing, 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 <laughs> going over the, you know, over the gaining. limits that you, sp- well, anything, whatever. It's something. It's doing something that they probably shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. But it's ended up on disc. Yeah. yeah. So that you know they just, and I think because of the band perhaps not feeling confident in the material, they all they can do is sort of dig in and play hard. Yeah. So it's it's got an iconic sound. I mean, I'm su- surprised oh, totally. if this hasn't landed on a. If a, you're going to use that word for anything, yeah. If this hasn't already landed on a a Quentin. A Quentin Trintin Kong. No, if this hasn't already landed landed on a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack, I'd be surprised. This is going well, to be it was, somewhere. It, it? it has been a hit around the world, but only in cover versions. Yeah, this is the strange thing. This version was only ever a hit in the UK and Europe. I've never heard of Billy Kid and the Pirates, and now I want Billy Kid and the Pirates. Well, now see, I've already got it wrong because I've not got it in front of me. Uh, what was his name again? Johnny. Johnny Kid. Sorry, Billy Kid. Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, and now I want to hear Mad. more from them, although this might be it. Who knows? Yeah, I don't, there's not masses more to hear, sadly. I'll go, I'll go on a voyage of discovery and might end up back where I started, but it's great. And I've given it 67 for production for its kind of... Um, it's Yes, its iconic sound. So on to lyrics then. I mean, um, like the music, the words to this have a bit more... Oh, it's... I have to say something along the words of pent-up sexiness about them. <laughs> so apparently the inspiration comes from a phrase that Fred Heath, Johnny Kidd, yeah. um, would use. So they'd be out and about with his mates, and if they'd see girls that they liked, he would use a phrase that it gave, that they'd they'd send quivers down the membranes. <laughs> Quite, I'm um, glad they changed the lyrics from that. Yeah. <laughs> quivers yeah, down so, the membranes. Um, that's, 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 um, yeah, this is... this the. This is just steamy and raw. It's essentially just saying you turn me on, isn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah. And and in a way that was acceptable to say in the early sixties, given that 
it still wasn't acceptable to say exactly those words come the late 60s, as we know. And I can imagine this being the kind of song that made parents worry a bit more about the innocence of their children and the influence of rock and roll than Cliff Richard and the Shadows were making them worry. Absolutely. This is the kind of one where you're going, oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, going off to your jive bars and yeah. wherever they go. Um, it's it's simple but effective the words um it's it's you know it's all it's all backbones and thigh bones and tremors and shaking and quivers you know it's it does the job so i'm giving it 53 for lyrics which gives it 65 overall oh that's a strong score it is a strong score it's a good song paul though isn't it it is a very very good song and and i think the difference here is that with, with the first song and which, it's british yeah. you know this is the important thing it's it's, it's not it's, an import <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, but the, with the first song, which which I really like, but didn't score as highly, that that that's um, there's a lot of the sounds like that. Was this one's really standing out to me? So um, anyway, let's go on to our final song and see what that does to the to the scheme of things, which is the shadows, Apache. <laughs> Paul? Well, I mean, in terms of iconic, there's that word again, <laughs> Yes. guitar things, mm. I mean, this is it. This is the pinnacle, really, in, in British pop. Mm. Um, it's quite hard to sort of overstate the influence of this on a whole generation of people, whether it was in reaction to or in love of it. Yeah. But you need you need symbols, and I don't mean symbols musically. I mean symbols, symbolic things, yeah, to inspire and and identify times and and moments. And Apache is one of them, I think. So the, the the key here is that the Shadows have a separate recording contract themselves to Cliff Richard, yes, clever, of and them. can make records under their own names, yeah, as well as do the the backing. And so again, it's Norrie Paramore producing. Uh, it's written by a guy called Jerry Lorden, who's a, a, a British songwriter. Uh, it's on Columbia again, so Norrie's doing all right. He's getting Cliff on one hand and he's getting the shadows on another. I mean, this spends five weeks in the charts. It's um, hanging around for something like 20 weeks or something like that. But it is a cover, in a sense, mm. or rather it's a different version of, Yes. rather, rather than technically a cover. So you're going to tell um, me now about someone called Bert Whedon. Yes, and, Bert Whedon, who himself is very, very important in terms of inspiring a generation to pick up guitars. Exactly, because, and I, you were beat too telling me about this by our mum. So mum told you. Yeah. About, you know. She 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 beat, beat you to it by me mentioning what songs, again, I was going to be talking to you about. So yes, she, she went to see them uh, in the 70s, playing it as an old hit of his. Yeah. Before the, the shadow, I just confused me. I always just presumed it was the shadows, kind of through and well, through. Well, I mean, it, they own it, really. Yeah, they, uh, the definitive version. Well, let me just say. So, this was originally a single that put, that Bert Whedon put out that had got to number twenty four. Oh right. Okay, so he'd done it earlier in the same year, nineteen sixty. So he'd done it earlier in the year, 
And it's quite a different version, the Burt Whedon version. It's sort of a bit... Slower, isn't it? Strange, slower, and it sounds a bit more robotic. It's, mm. a bit, it's a bit odd, really, for something that's themed around a particular people. Um, but, yeah, I quite like Burt Whedon's version. Yeah. Yeah, Burt Whedon, very, very important, but it's the shadows that make this their own. So, yeah, it's written by Jerry Lorden, who didn't really like Burt Whedon's version. So he goes up to the shadows and says... I've got this song, you might have heard it, Burt Whedon, but it's, um, I'd like you to do it. And apparently the tale is that he does it, he shows them how to do it by demonstrating it on a ukulele backstage <laughs> at one of their gigs or something. Yeah, It's like, how do you get from someone demonstrating this song on ukulele to the version at the end? How do you imagine it as being like, oh yeah, we'll do that. Because what's he, what's he going to do? Boo, 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 do, do. Boo, 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 do, do. Boo, do, 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 do. Boo, boo, do, do. Was, you know, it's yeah. like George Formby or something. Well, I I, might, I just happen to have a ukulele. I, I, you've been planning this for days. <laughs> you've got it all. Yeah. No, it's it's. I imagine he uh, showed them that, and then they went and listened to the Burt Whedon version. <laughs> and and said, we could do something different. Let's make it faster and better. I would have thought because yeah. it does start, doesn't it? The Burt Whedon version on the floor, Tom and everything. So they they've gone. Yeah, okay, that's fine. But let's let's. We're going to give it drive. G up a few a few uh, BPM, so we you know we have that floor tom intro, don't we, with the with the shadows definitive version setting that pace and rhythm for this basic basically a masterpiece which has inspired so much to come, and we we get that locked in bass and drums as we did with that cliff song which I've already forgotten. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But here it's back instead of backing up a kind of softly softly cliff, we it's backing up Hank Marvin and. You know, yeah. he's 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 doing his thing with his um, tremolo whammy bar, which is the that metal bar that you get on your um, electric guitars that if you bend it, it makes the string sound wobble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he he popularised that sound, didn't he? Really, in fact, it was really yeah. yeah. Even though we've heard it just before on Shaken All Over, it's so part of the defining um, Hank Marvin sound. And yeah, they, they were the bigger the bigger hit makers. So the shadows at this point, we've got Hank Marvin on electric guitar, Bruce Welsh on on acoustic guitar, Jet Harris on electric bass, and Tony Meehan on drums. Plus, you have got Cliff Richard on this track, oh, right. playing uh, a Chinese drum oh, okay. to accompany the the beating at the sort of dum 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 oh. emphasis at the start and the end, as well. So Cliff is on it. Uh, the shadows. So I mentioned the, this group, the Drifters, that they eventually become the Shadows. Uh, What's an interesting thing, if you want another Beatles link here, at some point they're like, well, we need a new lead guitarist. Um, where's Where's Tony Sheridan? It's like, ah. oh, we'll go down the Two Eyes Coffee Club, see if we can find Tony. Tony's not there, but Hank Marvin is. And that's, so, that's all it took. Yeah. Tony wasn't there that day. Yeah. yeah, he's always around the periphery, Tony Sheridan, of all sorts of things going on. Oh. But we'll talk more about the shadows in the future. I mean, and yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, here's another good one, another good link here. The Watkins copycat tape echo machine is part of Hank Marvin's sound. This sort of what people think sometimes is just reverb. It's not. It's tape echo. Right. So this is a device with a tape loop that records and plays back to create this delayed sound on you on whatever you plug into it. Yeah. First person to buy one of them when they were on when they were sold the Watkins copycat, Johnny Kidd. Ah. And uh, yeah, he bought like number one, but very soon one gets into the hands of Hank Marvin and it becomes this defining guitar sound. Mm. 
You're right, Johnny. I mean, they did have the big bendy sound and things, but and very, but just it's a different, just a different way of using it, isn't it? Here, mm. like Hank Marvin is known as being this clean. He's like the guitar equivalent of Cliff, but in a good yeah, but yeah. In the sense that he plays a very he plays a, a red strat, doesn't he? Um, yeah, oh, I mean, yeah, famously, <laughs> he definitely plays a red yeah. stratocaster. Yeah, famously, but with you know, very clean, all the steps in time and everything. But I mean, when you listen to the musically, you know, the shadows themselves backing him up. I mean, obviously his lead is is fantastic, um, but the the backup of the, from the shadows is 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 brilliant. Um, I think the the rhythm guitar's not doing is doing much of the same as it was doing before. It's not doing anything particularly intricate. It's just keeping. They're just all in in time and step with each other, aren't they? Yeah. And you've got that military esque kind of snare and stuff going on. Kind of a, like it's like a military march rock and roll. It's hard to define what Apache is, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's because so if we're talking about the music, it's inspired by so Jerry Lord and who I say is a British songwriter mm. has watched this film called Apache, yes, it's, from 1950, 1954. Which is a cowboy and western, isn't it? A cowboy and western, a cowboy and western. I did, I, I uh, no, hang on, I've got myself mixed up. A country and cowboy. <laughs> That's not right. Yeah. It's a Western film. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. Country and Western. What they used to call cowboys and Indians. Yes. Um, the sort of film that our granddad would have watched. But it's from 1954 in which Burt Lancaster, mm. notably not um, a Native American. Yes. Uh, is playing this Apache warrior, real life Apache warrior called Masai in, in brown face. You know, so. Yeah. Awkward. Yes, um, but that's what. So that's sort of the inspiration to Jerry Lord and to try and write this song to get that feel across. And and obviously Bert doesn't get that. It's I think there's probably more of that closeness to the tribal thing in in what the shadows do. But again, yes. it's all very it's all very sort of probably quite culturally insensitive, really, when you think about it. But uh, well, at least it's just at least it's just instruments. Uh, it's it's not a it's not like Running Bear where they're doing. Kind of yeah, mock, that's true. Kind of, which has, has its own issues. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it's just borrowing those kind of um, tribal beats and things. I think that's 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 more taking influence from, isn't it? Um, but of course, yeah, we get um, we also get that B section where we get the kind of modulation of the chords and Hank goes full wobble, euphoric with his lead, where we go into the the more uh, majory type of um, yeah kind of v- v- variation it goes into, which. It, because it, you can tell it's got a film music kind of background to it because it has that kind of a that progression to it um, rather than kind of coming out of a, a simple rock and roll type of form. But yeah, and then towards the end, he really goes, gets, hits those octave lower notes, doesn't he? He goes down the register. Yeah. His double picking is great. I mean, you hear, you do hear the occasional little mispick and things within this. But yeah, it's, you do. It's yeah. not note perfect that's not every tiny little bit perfect but because you're getting a performance aren't you you're not getting a a um pop jump me in there i'll redo that bar or that note i mean now you drag a note wouldn't you or you know it's it's, it's a performance and it's a hard song to play but um it's undoubtedly a classic piece of music that deserves its place in um in history of music and where it is and for that i have awarded it a music score of 78. Oh, blimey. Um, I mean, it's Apache. Yeah, it's, I know. It's 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 very, very significant. It is. Yeah. I mean, even like our dad is in a band 
that plays Shadows stuff yeah. in the early 60s. And this is the most... Or the uh, mid early mid-60s. This is the biggest shadowy, shadowy shadow thing. And also the Shadows had the, one of the best band names going, really. I think they, they, they kind of... Shadows is a great band name, isn't it? <laughs> it is. That, imagine yeah. being alive at the time where you could go, is anyone else called the Shadows? I don't think so. There's no internet to, to check and we've never say, heard or seen anyone called that. That'll be what we're called then. I think there was another band called The Shadows, but um, ah. there was also another band called The Drifters, so oh, well, they had there to go. come up with some, something. You'd have to be the better one then, don't you? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so on to production then. There's not much There's not much to say about this that, that we didn't say before with the Cliff Richards one. It, there's still a little lack of bite. They, they don't get that shaking all over thing that we got from... No, not at all. But I will say this, this benefits from being heard in the mono version. There's so many remasters of this now. I mean, it's been right. released and re-released over and over again in various... So if you hear the stereo versions, it, it's almost too much. Right. It splits it apart too much. And I'm not normally, as people know, I'm not a mono purist at all, but the mono mixes of this are, are much better because it feels more powerful when it's all right. pushing they together. They push more as they go along anyway. And that does, I know it's, it starts off gentler than it ends, which makes sense because it does build. But they actually, that means that they... Uh, I think if it had been a cliff song, they'd never get past the kind of dynamic range that they use at the beginning, but they don't because they've not got that cliff holding them back, basically. They're um, they're able to kind of like get into it more. You can feel the energy building and this, the volume building a bit and therefore the sound getting that little bit edgier, but it never gets too edgy because it's not their sound to be too edgy. It's, it's not who, what they are, but um, the, the, that urgency is, uh, is, is captured well. Um, it's still a little light and gentle, you know. But in that case, it, in this case, it works really well because it, it it's it's a very melodically driven tune, um, and it also had to be because it needed to be sampled later on. Um, although the famously <laughs> yeah. hip hop kind of one of the founding hip hop songs is based on Apache, isn't it? But not this version, mm-hmm. isn't it? A re-recording of Apache that someone else did i don't know the entire story but i know it's a big part of the beginnings of hip-hop isn't it it is yeah yeah that's it <laughs> well it's, that's for another podcast for another time without me trying to try remember vaguely the, the story of it i think i think someone else there was a band the bongo version yeah, yeah or something yeah. and that was used a lot in in early one of the first sampled big tunes which is weird because really they would have only done that because of the the, the shadows and stuff so yeah just goes to show how everything knocks on to other things so i've given it 58 for production which gives right. it 68 overall because there's no lyrics and unlike the first three series i'm not going to do the thing of averaging the lyrics the missing lyrics down to the zero if you know what i mean so i'm just taking the average of the music and production so it does get a, a good high score of 68 what's interesting Jim, um the b-side mm. is um what I thought for years, forever, in fact, until earlier today, is an instrumental version by the Shadows of the the Quartermaster's Stores, which is a very well-known sort of funny sing-along yeah, type thing. Uh, yeah, um, I think I know that. I can't, my singing's terrible at the moment. I feel so weak. I, I've got it on a, children, actu- on a children's CD, I think, the Quartermaster's yeah, Stores. But actually, it's listed on the original single although it doesn't seem to be on most streaming services these days as it's actually Quatermaster's stores what and the pit yeah named after the sci-fi series which had been really popular in sort of the late 50s 
So, yeah, so it's actually yeah, they've, if you look on say Discogs or something like that and have a look at the seven inch single, yeah, it's Quater Masters stores, mm-hmm. deliberately named in a stupid way to be uh, oh, right. after the sci-fi series, which I did not know, and I've known Qu- their version of Quater Masters stores for you know years. So nice. So that's a bit of a, a little bit of extra interest. If there. you end up at a pub quiz where that's a question, then you're in a really strange pub quiz. <laughs> I would have thought so. But you could set that question at a pub quiz and that. I, just be renowned. How how would you formulate and phrase that question? On what B-side of a famous <clears throat> shadow single was comically spelt as a homage to a popular science fiction? <sighs> People have switched off by this point. <laughs> They've left the pub. Um, yeah, anyway. So that, I, said, I said what its overall score was, wasn't it? 68. So yeah. we can do a chart, Paul. And do it. this time it's going to be... We might as well do them all, because there's 13 we've done so far. So we just do a top 13, I'll just do them all. Yeah. Okay, here we go. At number 13, Do You Mind, Anthony Newley. At number 12, Why, Anthony Newley. At number 11, What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For, Emil Ford and the Checkmates. At number 10, My Old Man's a Dustman, Lonnie Donegan. At number 9, Adam Faith and Poor Me. At number 8, New Entry, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Please Don't Tease. At number seven, Johnny Preston, Running Bear. At number six, it's Jimmy Jones with Good Timing. At number five, oh. it's Eddie Cochran, Three Steps to Heaven. At number four, it's Starry Eyed by Michael Holiday. At number three, Kathy's Clown, The Everly Brothers. And at number two, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over. And at number one, The Shadows, Apache. Well. There we go. Yeah. Wouldn't be my list, Gary, but it never is, is it? And that's the point. That's the <laughs> Well, it wouldn't be Noah. Um, yeah, I think um, I think Jimmy Jones could be higher there. That's hard. It's hard to argue against Three Steps to Heaven, though, as well. It's 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 all good oh, songs. Yeah, totally. it's great. I mean, it's, it, it's not a bad top six. I'm saying a top five, no top six. Well, I'd yeah. say well, I, so far, I would have all them on a compilation. At least the top six. Um, yeah, you know, so it's going well. Well, we've only got four, like I say, only got four more to come from uh, the, the year of 1960. And there is, just having a quick check ahead, a couple of big hitters in there. A couple of big well, names. Well, I, I, did, I did go and check, and you were right. There is only four more because one of them is number one for a long time. Yeah. That's why there's only four more to cover, like Before the three end or of the four year. months. So there's, um, there is a biggie. Mm-hmm. so looking forward to that and we will see you next week to sort all that out and um, until then bye bye and a very merry 60s to all of you at home